0: At Christmas time, we ask, when? When will that happen? When will finally the wrong fail? When will the right prevail? We look around, as undoubtedly the members of the seven churches from the book of Revelation did 2,000 years ago, and we say, When? We say, Really? We're in the time of Christmas, and we should ask the question, what difference does it make? Does it really matter? It matters now, but it also matters not because of only what happened in the past, but it matters because of what God says will happen in the future. Here at the end of the book of Revelation, this is it, and the words are spoken with a sense of finality. They are also spoken with a sense of authority over the last few months we've seen the book of Revelation is a guidebook. It's not necessarily an itinerary. It's surely not just a picture book that's to evoke emotions. It gives us information about God's plan for the end of the ages, the fact that what God began, in fact, began in eternity past. But what He did in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, in time 2,000 years ago, which we sing about and Acknowledge with our celebrations that will indeed be culminated in his eternal plan in the new heaven and the new earth. And so we've been working our way through Revelation and we felt it was appropriate to finish up here at a time in which we acknowledge his first advent, his first coming. We look forward to his last coming, the second coming of Jesus. And yet, as perhaps Dave already implicitly applied and at le- implied, and at least one person acknowledged with applause, it is not necessarily an easy task to go through. One commentator uh, acknowledges that some have sneered that none but a madman would meddle with the Book of Revelation, and anyone who does will lose whatever wits he had when he started his study. Uh, some of us might feel that way over the last few months. But we have to recognize that that message, the message of the book of Revelation, makes a difference in our lives. And it is connected to Christmas. It's obviously connected also to Good Friday. It's connected to Easter. And what is the message? The message that comes out of Christmas, the message that comes out of the book of Revelation, what is the message? It's that sooner or later, there will be a regime change. Sooner or later, this will be the kingdom of our God and King, that one day, sooner or later, his kingdom will come as his followers have prayed now for 2,000 years. And so we say with joy, let earth receive her king. He is king now, there's no doubt about it, but this world system lives in rebellion against him. To one degree or another, we all live in Babylon, to use one of the images of the book of Revelation. Babylon is a symbol of that systemic resistance to the true king, but sooner or later, there will be a regime change. And readers in the grimy circumstances of life, 2,000 years ago in the churches of Asia Minor that are listed in the early part of Revelation, but also believers today all over the world, we've prayed for them already, those especially who are persecuted and even believers today who live in the affluence and comfort of a city like ours, in a culture like ours, in the grimy circumstances of life, when we anticipate the message of Revelation which says there's going to be a regime change, there's going to be something happen where finally earth will receive her king, inevitably in our hearts and minds we say, really? Is this really going to happen? And what does that mean for today. So perhaps that's you. Whether you've been with us for months through Revelation or maybe you're just here for the first time today, we all perhaps at time to time in our lives would ask this question, Jesus is coming back and one day he will rule and reign. In fact, one day he will renew this creation to a new heaven and a new earth and we look around at our lives, and we look around at our frustrations, and we look around at our faults, and we look around at those who have betrayed us, and we look around at the heartaches that fill this world, and we say, really? And I'm here to tell you this morning, really. In fact, we're here to say, Maranatha. If you don't know what that means, We'll cover that in just a moment. Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And could we start this morning in chapter 1? Don't worry, I'm not going to preach the whole book. But uh, go to chapter 1, first of all, if you would. Because I want to remind you of where we began. In Revelation chapter 1, notice in verse 1. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Watch this, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So I'm claiming that one. (laughs) And blessed are those who hear. So you can claim that one. And who keep what is written in it, ah. That's the important part, not just to hear but to keep, and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. What time is near? Look down in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus is coming back. So go with me to chapter 22, and let's wrap up this incredible revelation of Jesus Christ by looking at this morning's text. We're in Revelation 22, and we'll begin with the verse that Dave left off with last week, verse 17, and down through the end of the chapter, the end of the book, and the end of the Bible. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 17 for our text this morning. And as I read, I just want you to hold in the back of your mind the question about who is speaking. Uh, Pastor Dave dealt with some of this last week, but it's difficult in Revelation sometimes to tell whether it's John speaking or whether an angel is speaking or whether indeed it's Jesus speaking. And we have that circumstance here this morning. So keep that in the back of your mind because clearly Jesus is speaking in verse 16. You notice that. And so pick it up in verse 17, and as I read, I would remind you, this is the Word of God for us today. John, t- John writing in Revelation 22, beginning in verse 17. Here the Word of God says, the spirit and the bride say, come, and l- let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Now, my suggestion to you is that Jesus is speaking through all of these verses until we get to the middle of verse 20. Jesus continues to speak. Now, I know some of you have have red-letter Bibles, and probably verse 17 and 18 and 19 are not in red letters, but that's all an interpretive decision. And you shouldn't stake everything on the basis of whether there's red print in your New Testament. But Jesus is speaking here, I think. These are the words of Jesus. Now, ultimately, though we can't know for sure, it also doesn't make a drastic amount of difference. But as I'll show you before we're through, there's a level of authority, especially in the warning we're going to see, that seems to be the words of Jesus himself. But all of it is God's word, and therefore all of it comes from Jesus. But these are the final words of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And after Jesus speaks in verse 20, John says, even so, or amen, come, Lord Jesus. That come, Lord Jesus, it reflects uh, the Greek words that are used in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. And those words transliterate a phrase out of Aramaic that basically we know it as in Greek Maranatha. It basically means Lord come or the Lord comes. Now why is that significant? Because Aramaic was the language that the people of Palestine and that part of the world spoke in their daily language. But the Bible was written in Greek and the people for example to whom first Corinthians was written they spoke Greek. And so The point of that is that early on, when the letters of the New Testament were written, already Christians were saying to one another in Aramaic, and then transliterated into Greek, Maranatha, 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 which means, come Lord. The point is, from the earliest days of the church, there was an understanding that Jesus who had come was coming again. And this was expressed as a deep desire. It was part of their worship. Evidently, because it's so familiar and because of the structure of the language, because it's in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, and then in Greek, it's here in Revelation chapter 22, it was commonly known when Christians would come together, they would either greet one another or they would say goodbye to one another. Or as part of their worship service, maranatha was a component which basically was a cry of their heart Lord, Lord Jesus, come. And it's an appropriate term. It's an appropriate thought. It's an appropriate sentiment. It's an appropriate passion for us to close our study in Revelation, Maranatha. Let me show you in this text what's happening and try to apply it to our lives today. The first thing I want you to see is that there's an affirmation in this Response that's really toward the Lord. There's a, there's a response toward the Lord about his coming. He has claimed that he's coming. Look in chapter 22. Dave dealt with that last week. Look in verse 7. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Look down in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. And so you get to verse 17, and the Spirit and the bride say, Come. There's, there's an affirmation of that. The one who hears says, Come. It's an affirmation of the promise that Jesus is coming. And out of the words of Jesus, he acknowledges that the Spirit, he acknowledges that the bride, the people of God, he acknowledges that there's a passion and a desire for them to come, for him to come, for him to return. He has said he will return. And the Holy Spirit, who inspires the word, and the people of God, the bride, And even those of us today, the ones who read 2,000 years ago the book of Revelation, and we today gathered in this building who look at these words, we say in our hearts, come. There's this desire for Jesus to come back. Think about it this way. One commentator suggested that the end is not so much an event. The end is a person. It's just summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember what we've said? He's our A to Z He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the definer of all reality, and one day He will be with us, and we will be with Him. That's His promise here, and there's an affirmation of that by the Holy Spirit and by the people of God in eternity and the people of God even now in time. So here's the application this morning. Do our hearts say, Maranatha, Not just in our words, not just in our singing, but in our heart of hearts do we cry out, Maranatha. Is there an eagerness for his return? Not just for Eden to be restored, that's going to be glorious. Not just for the curse to be removed, won't that be wonderful? But best of all, we will see him face to face. The promise of Revelation 21 and 22 is that God will be with his people. No more temple because there's no more mediation. There's no more means by which we have to come to God. We will be completely, totally intimate with him eternally. We will be with the infinite God for infinite ages and especially expressed in the person uh, revealed, made real to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We will be with him eternally. Do you desire that? I mean, do we really desire it? Do our hearts cry out, Maranatha? Because you see, if our hearts do, it will affect the way we make decisions day by day. You recognize that's what the Bible tells us. In the book of 1 John, we read these words. The Bible says, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, what? What? purifies himself as he is pure? Do you struggle with sin? Do you find yourself bound to a particular temptation? Do you find yourself unable to get victory? Is it possible that we're so focused and, and driven into this world that we're not desiring, we're not focusing on Jesus enough because this says that if we recognize that one day we will be with Him, one day He will return, one day He will make all things new, then what happens is that fuels a desire to live pure and holy lives because we'll be with Him one day. The Apostle... Paul talks about this in Colossians 3. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things, stop right there, think about it. What do we set our minds on? Now, you didn't intend to come this morning to get your toes stepped on, right? But, I mean, just think about it. And as I always say, I've had to struggle with this all week. What do we set our minds on? Because if you find yourself in despair, if you find yourself worried, if you find yourself fretting, or if you find yourself yielding to temptation and sinning, you're setting your minds on things that are not for the people of God. Because what this says, look at it, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And here's the reasoning, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, and then he links it to the second coming. Do you see it? He says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So here's a connection between what we set our minds on and how that affects the way we live, and the fact that one day he will return and we'll experience his glory. You see my question this morning? It's rather simplistic, I know. But I have to ask it of myself, and I think each of us need to ask it is there a part of our hearts and lives where we really do genuinely say, Come, Lord Jesus? Not just when things are miserable. I mean, all, all of us will do that. I mean, when we're in the middle of a train wreck, come, Lord Jesus, that prayer comes pretty easily. But on a daily basis, as we're making our life decisions, As we're faced with the way that we invest our time or our energy or our attention, our heart's focused on the coming of the Lord, because if our hearts are focused there, if we in our hearts are saying Maranatha, it affects the way we make our choices. When hearts are distracted, double-minded, we tend to be seduced by idols. The focus here is should be on jesus i could just ask a real simple question when's the last time you sat down and just read through one of the gospels matthew mark luke or john when's the last time you just you just dove deep once again into the person of jesus christ do our hearts say maranatha and this desire this longing is what sets us apart you get that right One of the distinctive features of those of us that follow Jesus is we want Jesus to come back. And not just for the stuff, not just for the curse to be gone, we want Jesus to come back, to be with Jesus. Do our hearts cry out, Maranatha. There's not just this affirmation to the Lord's promise, but also then there's this invitation for those that are thirsty. And you see it at the last part of verse 17. And by the way, this is the last invitation of many in the book of Revelation. It's, a, it's an invitation to change. It leverages this metaphor of living water that we've seen, the idea of being thirsty for spiritual life. Uh, we've seen that over and over. We dealt, Pastor Dave dealt with it last week. It's the image of this eternal provision of, of the water of eternal life are you thirsty? Look at the end of verse 17. It says, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And that's who can come. Notice the invitation is, and let the one who understands all of this come. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, and let the one who has performed pretty well and is worthy, let him come. You notice it doesn't say that. In fact, it doesn't even say, careful here, It doesn't even say, let the diligent or the sincere come. It says, the one who's thirsty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The one who is thirsty, the one who desires to take the water of life without price, because you can't buy it. Nobody's got the funds to buy it. Not enough Bitcoin, not enough Apple stock. It's not just that we're impoverished, it's that no matter how wealthy you are, you're impoverished in this market, because the water's already been purchased for you, it's already been provided, and this is another invitation. Don't forget that this was originally written to to these seven churches, to, to real people, people in those churches, and the people that were connected to those people who were not yet believers and so here is an opportunity, but it's also a responsibility. When God opens a door of opportunity, watch this. When God opens a door of opportunity, there's a responsibility laid upon you. And so here there's another responsibility for anyone who hears, for anyone who has ever read the book of Revelation, and for you this morning. Now there is a responsibility laid upon you. Because these are the words of the Lord Jesus who says, if you're thirsty, you can come. If you desire the water, it's available freely. It's available without price. The problem is sometimes we're just not really thirsty. Now, we could dive into the theology of what makes us thirsty because there's a sense in which there's a terror of judgment that will make us thirsty for the living water. But the Bible also says that the kindness of God brings repentance. And you see both in the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. There was an acknowledgment of her sin and her guilt, but there was also this graciousness that Jesus showed her that evidently men had never shown her in her life. And you have both. You have the judgment of God, which produces thirst, but you also have the kindness and the grace of God. But it comes down to what we desire. Do you see it in the verse? Let the one who desires take the water of life. You see, at the end of the day, I know this is controversial, but let me just say it this way. You do what you want to do. Every one of us, we do what we want to do. We all have stories where we feel like we were manipulated or we feel like we were in a circumstance where we were forced to do something we didn't want to do. But the very point is, the fact that we were forced is in that very moment we did what we wanted to do underneath that compulsion. So the question comes down to what do we desire? And as we've said over the last few weeks, the people who desire to go their own way, they don't want to come to God on his terms, but rather they want to live their life on their terms. It's as though the God of heaven says, fine, have it your way. This is an invitation for the thirsty, and it's an issue of what we desire most. And I'm thirsty, so just a moment. This happened to me last week. I'm I'm holding back a cough, which will start likely a coughing fit. And so if it begins, I apologize beforehand. And hopefully it will go quickly. And I'm not contagious. It's just left over from the last couple of weeks. Here it comes. (coughs) Pardon me. Now here's the point about this invitation to the thirsty. Do our lives say to those who are thirsty do our lives say come? Because that's what you have here. Let the one who is thirsty come. You see, it's a play on words. The spirit and the bride and those who hear, they say to Jesus, come. But then Jesus turns and says, and by the way, speaking of coming, if you're thirsty, you can come to me. So the question is, do our lives say come? What do others see in our lives, what do the people around us what do they see in the way we love and the way we talk and the way we care for one another, in the way we deal with disappointment and heartache? What do they see? You See, this is the patience and the kindness of God, and drenched in this is God's grace. You say, Well, the book of Revelation, it's about hordes of demon armies, and it's about all kinds of judgment and bloodshed and crying for the mountains to fall on you to kill you. It's about those kinds of things, but drenched Throughout Revelation is this heart of God that says there's still time. You can come. It's the patience of God. In 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You recognize the point of this? If you're still reading this, there's hope for the people around you. There's hope for you. The door of mercy r- remains wide open. When these events happen, that door will have closed. But what Jesus wants you to know is that the very reason he's given this revelation, at least a primary reason, is for people who are still haven't had their thirst satisfied. They can come when they read, when they hear the door of mercy Remains open. But you need to be careful. Because it's not too late until it is. It's not too late until it is. The Bible says it's appointed that a man wants to die, and after that comes what? Judgment. It's not too late until it is. The old preachers used to say, There are two thieves on the cross and that's for a reason. The thieves that were crucified with Jesus, one was saved that we not despair, but the other was lost that we not presume upon God's grace. Do our lives say come? (coughs) Excuse me. And just like we heard last week, there are two options. There's this possibility of coming and believing, but the sad thing is there are those who reject. And next we have an extreme example of that second, because Jesus also has here an admonition for rebels, a warning, an admonition for rebels. Look with me in verses 18 and 19. And as we read these verses, I want you to think back to the rebellion in the garden. Remember how we've seen so much of Revelation 21 and 22 is a reconstitution of Eden and there's, a, there's an echo of the things that happened in Eden you have that here think about the serpent and think about Eve while we read All right, this is a severe warning from the words of Jesus in verse 18 I warn everyone by the way the I is emphatic that's the reason we believe Jesus is speaking here I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book by the way, who's the warning to? you know, this is about adding or taking away. And so a lot of people take off on, well, this is the scribes or these are the people who translated the Bible or these." Th- this is a warning to the cults and that kind of thing. Who's the warning to? It's to us. It's to whoever hears. That's the danger. And basically these are rebels, as I'll show you before we're through. It's everyone who hears I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Now stop and think about that. Now this warning is likely hyperbole. The reason I say that is because the plagues haven't happened yet, but for 2,000 years people have been adding to the book of Revelation or taking away from it. But once again, this is that symbolism that we keep seeing, that the symbolism represents something that likely is more terrifying than the symbol itself. And there's irony here. You you catch the irony. You've got this revelation of Jesus Christ, which has within it these terrible, terrible plagues, and Jesus is saying, you take my book, and you either add to it or you subtract to it, those kinds of plagues, that's what you're going to end up with. It's his authority because they are His words. That's the passion. You don't play around with the words of God. You can edit my sermons if you want. You can misrepresent. You can either take away or add to something that I might say. And you can get away with it. In fact, I don't even think I'll sue you. You can just you can go ahead and, and go for it. But you don't want to do that with the words of God, do you? And this is Jesus himself speaking about his own revelation. And he's speaking about people who either add to it for their own benefit or subtract to it for their own benefit. And Jesus says, that's serious stuff. You mess with this book, you pay its consequences, is what Jesus says. I love that irony. It's tragic, but it's fitting. Pick it up in verse 19, not just adding, but in verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So this is Jesus invoking his own authority, focused on the preservation of his own revelation. And this is not the issue of losing your salvation. The New Testament is clear that we are saved by God and we are kept by God. It's just this is a manifestation that if people do this, they have no part in what they could have had a part in. No part in the tree of life. No part in the holy city. Now it's adding to and taking away. What happened in the garden? What did Eve do? She added to the Word of God. And what did Satan do? He took away from the Word of God. So you have the same thing. Part of rebellion is taking God's revelation, what God has said, and manipulating it and changing it to where it's more acceptable or more manageable or more adaptable to your own desires. That's what's happening here. Jesus here is echoing Moses regarding the law code of God for the Old Testament people of Israel. And the irony of that is Jesus is echoing Moses, but Jesus is the Word, so Moses was just speaking the Word of God But look at what it says in Deuteronomy 4.2. You shall not add to the word that I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. The issue is God's authority. And this is an admonition to rebels because that's the nature of rebellion. The nature of rebellion is a willful distortion of God's authority for the sake of our own comfort and our own agenda. And so even with the book of Revelation, Jesus says there's going to be a temptation for people to either add to its message or to take away from its message. And what is its substance? I mean, specifically, this is about the book of Revelation. We don't want to lose that. And it's representative of the kind of rebellion that sin does in people's lives, that that sin produces in the lives of people. But The the question is, what is specifically, circle back to Revelation itself, what is the substance of Revelation? It's that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that Jesus is coming again, bringing blessing and judgment. And the truth of the matter is, rebels don't want to hear that. So they either add to it, or they take away from it. An admonition for rebels. Here at the end of the Bible, there's one more acknowledgement. That Jesus is king. As they used to say in youth ministry, that God is God and you are not. And that's, that's exactly what's happening here. And there's something within us. It, it's still part of our, even those of us that are redeemed, we still have enough of our flesh, that, that fleshly DNA that's still in us that we push back about that. We push back We'd rather be our own God. We'd rather make our own rules. We'd rather chart our own path. That rebellion is still there in our flesh, but it is definitive of the one who has not yet received the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And the issue is this. When we think about Jesus' words here, which represent a warning to rebels, We have to ask the question, do our convictions say danger? Do we live in such a way with with a kind of conviction about God's Word and who Jesus is that we recognize and we acknowledge that people who want to change the Word of God, who want to negotiate it, who want to make it malleable, who want to manipulate it, are we willing to say danger? Danger. Danger. The question of does God really say? Did God really say this about marriage? Did God really say this about gender? Did God really say this about His lordship? Did God really say this about sin? Did God really say this about hell? And when we read that, when we hear that, when we come up against it, we don't have to be harsh. We shouldn't be. We we shouldn't be unloving. But there should be something in both our convictions and in the way we respond that basically says. There's danger here. It's a warning to rebels. The tendency in our culture to sit in judgment on the Word of God, and it has always been there, it's the pervasive spirit of Babylon. But it's everywhere today, isn't it? And a willingness for us to say, warning. You know the story of Thomas Jefferson's Bible, right? His mutilated Bible. He was uncomfortable with all the miracles of the Bible, so he took a penknife and he cut out all the, all the miraculous aspects of the life of Jesus. And Functionally, that's what people do. The parts of the Bible they don't like, they just excise them. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Not the issue of a physical Bible, the issue of the message that God gives taking that message and then not liking it and so adapting it to where we're comfortable with it. And one of the things that revelation is this is the reason it's such an issue in revelation. I think it's the reason Jesus brings it up right here at the end of the book is because revelation is is a kind of line in the sand. I mean you read the book of revelation and you see that there's a call to make a decision. Who is lord for the seven churches, was Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? And now for us today, if we want to fast forward 2,000 years, who is Lord? Is pleasure Lord? Is acceptability Lord? Is our reputation Lord? Is comfort Lord? Who will be Lord? you see, that's indicated by what you desire and whom you worship and what you chase really who you obey. Our convictions should say danger. So the applications this morning, do our hearts say Maranatha, and do our lives invite people saying come? Do our convictions hold to this authority of God's Word by saying danger? But then there's a confirmation to the reader. There's a last word to the reader in verses 20, and then the response in 21 and this is from Jesus, and it's also from John, and it's through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. These are the final words. Look at them one more time. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things, that is Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Here's the confirmation, and this is the summary of Revelation. You can trust his sure promise. That's what Revelation tells us. You can trust the sure promises of God. And this brings assurance and it brings peace and it brings hope in our darkness and in our frustrations and even in our loss and in our pain because his promises are sure. He testifies to these things. And there's an assurance to it. Surely I am coming soon. The message is this, God's got this, God's got this, and to these original seven churches 2,000 years ago who died waiting for the promise, I acknowledge, it still made a difference in their lives, they had real hopes real dreams, they had real disappointments, they had real questions, but the book of Revelation was basically their message they received from Jesus himself, who says, God's got this. Will you receive it that way? Will you trust in his sure promise? One great commentator on Revelation says it this way, at the very close of the book is the confession that the answers to the problems of life do not lie in people's ability to create a better world. Thank God. But those answers lie in the return of the one whose sovereign power controls the course of human affairs. That's what Revelation says. And this is his sure promise. And do you see how this highlights for us, how it highlights Christmas, the wonder and the mystery of Christmas? This one who gives this revelation, he really was born in these humble circumstances. He really lived a perfect life. He he died a terrible, undeserved death. He conquered death and resurrection. He rose again. And now this is his sure promise. One day he will return. And he'll return not the way he came the first time, but he will return in power and he will return to reign until he does, until he makes all things new. Verse 21, John says under the authority of the Holy Spirit, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. We can trust in his sure promise and we can rest in his gospel grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. And don't miss the way he speaks of Jesus. He calls him Lord Jesus. Jesus being the one who saves. Remember we read it from Matthew 1. Jesus will save his people from their sins. So this has to do, his name has to do with his salvific work. The fact that he came to save us. But he is also Lord. He is King The mystery of it all is that when that baby was born in that stable or cave or whatever the circumstance was, at the very time he was helpless, he was also at the very same time holding the universe together with the word of his power, Hebrews 1. He's the Lord Jesus. So we sing, Away in a Manger, the little Lord Jesus. The words are important. He was Lord Jesus in the manger And he is Lord Jesus at the end of Revelation, where the writer John cries out on behalf of all of us, come, Lord Jesus. And then he promises us the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. We can rest in gospel grace. And what else, where else could we be? What would it be like to read the book of Revelation and not know the grace of God? What would it be like to read about the, the blood that flows to the horse's bridle? What would it be like to read about the, the hordes of demon armies? What would it be like to, to read about the, the terror of the judgments and then to say, I better do my best because that's terrible stuff. I'm just going to be sincere because that's pretty bad stuff. Maybe God will let me slide through. No, at the end of the book, what does it say? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us. It's God's grace that gets us through. His gospel grace that extends to sinners like you and like me. And so we say, Maranatha, Lord, come. Our friend S. Lewis Johnson Talks about a remarkable little sermon that was preached by an obscure Scottish preacher generations ago. It had three points, because most sermons do, right? The first point was that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, and so this Scottish preacher said, That's my sin away. The second point, Is from the Sermon on the Mount. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them is forgotten before God? You are more valuable than many sparrows. The Scottish preacher said, that's my cares away. And then he went to Paul, to the Thessalonians, where it says, we shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's myself away. Did not have anything more on point than that, Johnson says my sin away, my cares away, myself away. And that's revelation. I end with one of my favorite preacher stories that I've ever told. You say, well, is it true? I don't have a clue, but it's a great story. (laughs) They say that years ago, a traveler in the Alps rounded a bend And saw a beautiful cottage with an astonishing garden in the middle of nowhere. And he just had to stop and find out what the circumstance was about this garden. And he found the caretaker who lived in the cottage and he struck up a conversation. Of course, he was welcomed as a traveler would be in that kind of circumstance generations ago. And they began to talk and he asked, "Tell tell me about your garden. Tell me about how you came to be here in the middle of nowhere on the side of a mountain. There's this beautiful garden. And it said, All oh, this garden belongs to the king. And the traveler was stunned. And he said, Well, how does that work? What's the history of it? He said, Well, years ago, the garden was, was, uh, was planted and, and it was cultivated. And I've had the privilege of caring for this garden. And it was an astonishingly beautiful place in the middle of nowhere. And the traveler said, Well, this is incredible. How often does the king come and visit? He must love to come here. And the gardener smiled, and he said, oh, oh, the king has never come. This is my job. This is what I do. This is my life. I tend the garden for the king. But he's never come. A traveler's even more stunned. He says, It's so beautiful. It's spotless. It's, it's cared for so well. You've been doing this your whole life, and the king has never come. Why do you, why do you keep doing it? And you know what the gardener said. Well, don't you see? The king might come today. And there it is. And how glorious that would be that the king would come today. Maranatha. Let's pray together. Father, speak to hearts. Remind us that when we have this hope that Jesus will return it. It helps us And our battle against sin, that we might purify ourselves because the Lord Jesus is pure. There is a promise in our heartache and in our trials. There's a promise in our blessings and in our happiness. There are rich promises in Revelation. But we know that at the end of the day, This life, this world, and all that it holds, even in its best gifts, this is not all there is. That we live for eternity, that we're to set our minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. And so, Father, make us people who live wholly and completely grounded in this life and in this world, and yet all of our hopes and desires vested in eternity. Because we know, Lord, those are the kind of people who change the world for the glory of God. And we're not concerned that we change the whole world so much as we are that we affect our worlds, our families, and our neighborhood, and our friends, our church to affect our city. And so, Father, help us be this kind of family, this kind of people. Help us be this kind of church that is wholly grounded in the life that you've called us to here, but manifesting the values of the new heaven and the new earth. Help us be an outpost of heaven, a a colony of your kingdom here. Father, thank you for what we've seen and heard in Revelation. And help us remember That you, the king, you might come today. Let earth receive her king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.